All right. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Looking forward to opening God's Word with you. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome. Uh, glad to have you this morning. Uh, and genuinely, I know I say this every week, but we'd love to get to know you, help you get plugged into the community here, and, and uh, see what God's doing in the community here and have you be a part of that. And so that's really what we're going to be talking a lot about really this morning as well. And so looking forward to uh, diving into our passage this morning. So uh, we are walking our way through the book of 1 Corinthians together, and so uh, we've been just working our way passage by passage, chunk by chunk through that book since probably February or so. We're, we're almost done. We should be wrapping up our study in 1 Corinthians in the next month or so here, kind of right around, uh, right around September, and, and then uh, looking forward to what's up next. But if you are new or you've been gone, let me just catch you up on where we've been at briefly, and we'll dive into our study this morning in chapter 12. So, like I said, 1 Corinthians is a letter that's written uh, by the Apostle Paul to a church in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth. And Corinth was uh, just a little bit of important context. So that city was really important as a, a port city because, uh, because of its location that controlled most kind of east-west trade between Rome and the rest of the Mediterranean. And so because of the nature of that in that time, it was incredibly wealthy and influential an important city because of its location, but it was also unique because it was a pretty new city. Rome had conquered it, destroyed it, let it sit for a good long while, and right about a hundred years prior to the writing of this letter, they had started to resettle it and rebuild it with people who were loyal to Rome, mostly freed slaves and former army veterans. And so what you have in Corinth is this culture of people who don't really have a name, who don't really have an identity, and who are looking to be in a new city and to make a name for themselves and to make an identity for themselves and, and to make new lives and new families and all that kind of stuff. And so what you have have in Corinth is this incredibly upwardly mobile and aspirational culture. It's a culture that cares very deeply about making a name and making an identity for themselves. And, and that context is important because, because everything in Corinth revolved around that. It was the thing everyone cared most about, climbing the social and economic ladders, being seen as important and influential and praiseworthy, and all that stuff was so incredibly, deeply important to the people of Corinth. And one commentator summed it up this way. They said, the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. Corinth was the place you went to make a name for you, at whatever cost to anyone else. And tragically, what we see in the, the church in Corinth is that they looked just like the culture around them. They weren't any exception to this, this, this kind of self-centered culture. And as we study the letter, we've seen over and over again how their highest priority is very clearly not God's glory and the advancing of his kingdom, but is their own glory and the advancing of their own social status in their church or in their community or whatever it might be. And so what we've seen is that this self-centered mindset was at the heart of pretty much all the problems that Paul has to address in this dysfunctional church. And we didn't have time to get into all of it because that would take up our whole time. We're near the end of the book as it is. But what's important that you know is that in, the, in chapters 11 through 14, Paul's specifically addressing the self-centered ways that this church is acting in the context of their worship gatherings, when they gather together for worship. And specifically in chapters 12 through 14, what he's talking about is the self-centered ways that they're viewing and approaching and understanding the various ways that God was empowering them with spiritual gifts in all different kinds of ways. And, and so what he has to do in these chapters is to confront the self-centered ways and device ways that the Corinthians are, are approaching their spiritual gifts. And what should come as no surprise is that they looked at them and used them as being about them. 
And there was yet another way, another means by which they could kind of climb up the social and economic ladders in their day and, and be seen as impressive and praiseworthy and important and influential. What we see Paul doing over the course of these three chapters in chapters 12 through 14 is that he's, he's really systematically undermining the Corinthians' self-centered approach to spiritual gifts. And he's teaching them not only that God empowers his people by his spirit for the good of the church as a whole and for his glory, but he, but he does, but that rather than the, 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 these, uh, these spectacular or miraculous kinds of gifts being the most important things, what Paul's going to see, we're going to see next week, is that he lays out that, that a humble and selfless love for others. That's really the thing that matters most. That's the, that's the big E on the I chart. That's the thing to be valued and celebrated and applauded. You see, but what happens is the Corinthians just applaud all the stuff that makes them look impressive. And that's the things that they're after. Two weeks ago, as we began looking at these chapters, we saw how kind of the modern conventional approach to spiritual gifts, where we see them as these kind of special God-given abilities that we need to somehow figure out what we've been given and then figure out how to use them, that, that that view actually leads us to kind of a similar spot where we end up spending all this time looking at ourselves and, and focusing on ourselves rather than on God and, and on others. And and in contrast, what I tried to do a couple weeks ago is lay out, lay out a little bit of a different approach to spiritual gifts, one that I would argue is a lot more biblical, I would say. And, and it simply sees them not as special abilities, but instead as spirit-appointed and spirit-empowered opportunities to minister on God's behalf. And if you'd missed that sermon, I'd strongly encourage you to go back, find it on our website, you can find the links there, all that stuff. Or if you were here and you have questions about that, Love to process that more. But, but the big thing that I was trying to get across is that when we approach spiritual gifts as, as spirit-appointed and empowered opportunities for ministry rather than special abilities, it really changes a whole lot because and most importantly, in, what it does is it takes our eyes off of ourselves. It takes our eyes off of our gifts or whatever we think might be special about us and instead it, it helps us to set our attention back on God, focusing on him and how he might be calling us to serve and empower us to serve in whatever ways he might be doing it. And that's what we saw Paul emphasizing last week in the first part of chapter 12. He's trying to get the Corinthians to take their eyes off of themselves and off of their own gifts and start to put their eyes back on God, the one who's the giver of the gifts in the first place. And you see, the Corinthians thought that the ways that they were gifted said a lot about how impressive or important they were. And Paul's trying to remind them in the first half of chapter 12, no, no, no. Uh, the, the gifts say how impressive and how important God is. They're, they're not saying something about you. They're saying something about God. And so instead, they should be humbled and honored that God would empower them to, to, uh, to, to serve him in what at all in the first place. And so, as we studied the first half of the chapter last week, again, Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to take their eyes off of themselves and put their eyes back on God, the giver of the gifts in the first place. And he's going to continue to try to shift our focus and our attention away from ourselves this week, too. And in the section that we're going to study here, the last half of chapter 12, what we're going to see is that what he's trying to do is, in this passage is he's, he's, describing, uh, he's describing the church, trying to get us to look at the church as a whole, and he's describing the church as the, as the body of Christ. And now, just like a physical body, the, the church is the body of Christ is made up of these many interdependent parts. And the point that he's going to try to make this morning is, is not only that God has gifted and appointed and empowered each of us in all different kinds of ways, but that we actually need one another. We need one another if we're going to actually be able to be and to do what God has called us to be and to do as his church. 
that you cannot do it alone. And so if the first half of chapter 12 is look at God, the second half of the chapter is look at the church, look at one another. And we see our need for God and our need for one another. And there's such a beautiful picture of interdependence that we see this morning. So let's pray. We'll dive into our passage, see how God might be challenging and shaping us this morning through his word. God, thank you uh, for gathering us. Thank you uh, that you have kept your word for us so that we might uh, know you through it. And so we ask, Spirit, that you would empower us this morning uh, to be able to hear and respond rightly to your word. And that you'd empower me to teach it with power and authority, which, which I don't have apart from you. And so, God, we really need you. Enable us to see ourselves and others with the accuracy and with the grace that you see us. And God, would that be good news for our community and good news for our world as we live as a people who by your good design need one another and also by your good design have been called to make much of you. Help us see how life-giving and freeing and empowering that really is. Help us to be a people that live for you and not ourselves. So to that end, God, we ask. Amen. All right, well, we're in uh, end of chapter 12 this morning. Begins in verse 12. Reads this way. For just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And even so, the body is made up of, not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, then I would not for, it would not for any reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if there were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put together the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there would be no divisions in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, then every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, then every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. And God's placed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healings and helping and guidance and, and different kinds of tongues. And are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? The answer is there's no, right? They're rhetorical questions, right? Verse 31, now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you still a more excellent way. All right, like I, like I said in, in, in the beginning, what Paul's trying to do throughout chapter 12 is to get us to take our eyes off of ourselves and, and shift our focus, shift our attention, start looking up at God and outwards at the church as a community as a whole. Because what's happening in Corinth is that those in the church who God had gifted, who he had appointed and empowered by his spirit in more visible or miraculous kinds of ways were becoming really puffed up and proud and increasingly impressed with themselves. 
think that they were really great. They were just God's special gift to the world, right? Well, those who had, God had gifted in less visible or less spectacular kinds of ways were feeling overlooked and left out, unimportant, unnecessary. Both of which, I will add, are ultimately self-centered mindsets when it comes to spiritual gifts. In response to this self-centered, individualistic view of spiritual gifts, Paul reminds them about the reality of their, their identity and their calling as a church in the first place. Verse 27, he says this, he says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Now, Throughout the passage, what Paul's doing is he's kind of fleshing out the, the significance and the implications of that reality. But before we get to that, we got to first need to take a look at just the question, what does it mean that the church is the body of Christ? What is that about? What is that inferring? What, what's, that, what's all going on there? And to do that, I just want to take a quick detour to Ephesians chapter 1. I think I forgot to add the slides for this, but just trust me, it reads this way, right? <laughs> Uh, verse uh, Ephesians chapter 1, 22 through 23, Paul, he's writing to the church. He says, God has placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. See, what, what Paul's doing there is he's saying that the church, which, by the way, is not referring to a building, but a, the people of God, the, the actual people who trust and follow and serve him, that, that the church, God's people, is meant to be the embodiment of Jesus in the world, and therefore the means by which God fills the earth with his presence. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the, the identity, the, the calling of the church, of God's people, is to fill the earth with the presence of God by living as the embodiment of Jesus himself. By, with our community, with our lives, reflecting, revealing what Jesus is like, showing him. John Piper sums it up this way. He says, God means to fill the universe with the glory of his Son by putting the church on display as the embodiment of of his son. Do you get that, church? Do you, do you see the significance of what Paul's laying out there? He's saying that our primary purpose, our highest calling as the people of God is to fill the earth with the glory of God by being the embodiment of Jesus in the world. That's what it's all about. That's why we're here. That's what we do. That's our calling. That's our job. That's the thing that drives everything we are to be and to do as a church. What Paul is saying in verse 27 and throughout the whole passage this morning is that you cannot do that alone. You cannot do it alone. You cannot be the body of Christ by yourself. You cannot fill the earth with the presence of God by yourself. If you could, then you would be Jesus himself. But you're not, right? Instead, by God's good design, it takes a community of people that, as Paul repeats in verse 14 or verse 18 and 24 and 23 times, he repeats that God has intentionally and deliberately put this community together. And he's done it in such a way that it's only when we come together as one that we're able to, by his power, embody the very presence and power of Jesus. And so fill the earth with his glory. And that has far-reaching implications, but just on the surface is this, is that being a part of the church is not optional. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can't opt out 
of being a part of the church. It is central to our very identity and calling as God's people. And so to, to check out or, or to, to opt out or just say no to being a part of the church, or I'll just add this to endlessly be fine with just showing up and never plugging in, never serving, never giving, never being a part of a community of God's people is to reject the very identity and calling that God has given us as his people. You cannot opt out. That's not an option. If we're going to follow Jesus, being a part of his body, the local body of believers, is intrinsically important. It's part of what it means to follow him. But what's so important that you see throughout the passage is how this unified, Christ-embodying community, just like a, a physical body, is made up of many unique and yet interdependent parts, each of which are necessary and indispensable to our ability to actually live out our identity and calling as the church. Verse 12, Paul writes, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 21 and 22, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, then where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? See, what Paul's doing this morning is he's saying that God's designed his body, the church, in such a way that not only is every part unique, but that every part is necessary. They are all equally interdependent. You see, a body is not just a collection of like individually functioning parts doing their own thing. It is a, a, a body. Just look at your own body. It is a deeply interconnected organism. When you step on a Lego in the middle of the night, right, it's not just your foot that reacts. Your whole body reacts, right? Your leg kind of lifts up as, you, as you're like deeply in pain to kind of get your foot out of the way and your arms reach down to kind of grab your foot and rub it for, for some, some reason. You think that that's going to help even though it never does, right? Or your mouth opens to scream for sure the praises of God and all the things you love so much about your children, right? Your, your eyes start scanning the floor for all the other death spikes that you might need to avoid if you actually want to love your kids in the morning still, right? Like, like the whole body is working together. And it does that naturally. It's just, it's the default way it works. It's, it's what it is. But it's not just that the body is, is interconnected, the body is interdependent. See, you notice that especially when you get injured, right? Maybe you've thrown out your back or, or you've injured a, a foot or leg or something, and so you kind of have to like hobble around for a little while. And, and what you find pretty quickly is that after just a little while of kind of hobbling around is that all other new parts of you start hurting that weren't hurting before, right? Your back's messed up, and that's the thing that was hurting, and now suddenly, like, your one leg is really starting to hurt, right? Or your whatever is going on, right? And what's happening is that, is that that's happening because, what you, because that those other parts of your body, they're trying to compensate for the part that's injured, the part that's not working right. And they're by, by doing something that they weren't designed to or by just doing way more than they were designed for. And pretty soon what you find is that nothing starts working and you're just like stuck in bed and can't move, right? See, the, the same is true in the body of Christ, Paul is saying this morning. Everyone in the body is not just different. It's not just that God gifts us and empowers us in unique ways. 
but it's that everyone in the body of Christ is necessary and indispensable. There are no appendixes in the body of Christ, right? There's no second kidneys, right? You need all the parts. They're all necessary. They are all indispensable. And if you don't minister with the gifts that God has given you, and if you don't serve in the ways that God has appointed and empowered for you to serve, and if you don't play the role that God has given you in this community, it doesn't just hurt you. It hurts everyone. And it inhibits all of us from being able to live out the identity and calling that we have as the church, as his, as, as his body. And I just want to just take a moment just to be clear here. When I'm talking about ministering with the gifts that God's given you and serving and playing your role, what I am not primarily talking about is Sunday mornings. Don't get me wrong, we need people to serve here on Sundays in all kinds of ways and to use their gifts in all kinds of ways here on Sundays. But filling the earth, even just our city with the glory of God by embodying his presence, that does not primarily get worked out on a Sunday morning. Instead, it gets worked out in the context of communities that are living life on mission together, seeking to grow in the gospel and make disciples and multiply Christ-embodying communities in the everyday stuff of life. See, it happens when we invest our lives into one another, into our family and friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our community as a community. See, that's why it is so important. That's why it's so important for you to get involved with a small group See, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where growing in the gospel really happens. That's where making disciples really happens. That's where multiplying, Christ-embodying communities, that's where that really happens. I remember sitting down with uh, Paul and Laura Ashley when they were becoming members. I didn't tell you I was going to talk about you this morning, but I am. And, and um, I remember... We were just talking with them, and, and we're like, they're they like fill out the membership application, and they're, we're you know meeting up with them like we do, and they're just they're just asking one of the questions that they're asking is how can we serve, like how do we how do we how do we get in how do we how do we really plug ourselves in? And I said I just said to them one I was just so encouraged that they were asking that question, right? But I just said to them yes, find a way you can serve on Sunday, but way more importantly, a exponentially higher priority is that you would find ways to intentionally, deliberately, seriously ask God how he is calling you to invest your lives into the people of this church and give yourself to that. See, God has brought you into this church. I told them not to merely run slides on a Sunday or serve in nursery or do whatever else, but so that you might use your gifts to make disciples and so to help fill our city with the glory of God as people come to know and love and follow and grow up in their faith in him. You see, being a part of the body and using our gifts, it requires that we live life together in community that's why small groups are so important. Church, I need you to hear this. Paul, Paul is not just saying this morning that, that, that the church needs you or that you need the church. What he's saying is that 
He's saying both of those things, that you need the body and that the body needs you. If you are a Christian, then the reality is is that that you need a community that will help you live out your true identity and calling, but that that community also needs you, that God has uniquely appointed and empowered you to minister on his behalf in ways that he has not done in other people. And when you choose to opt out, when you say, no, I'm not going to plug in, what that's doing is that's actually prohibiting, it's inhibiting the body as a whole from being Jesus's embodiment in the earth because we need everyone. We need everyone. You see, in that reality of our interdependence as members of the body of Christ, it, that's not a sign of weakness, right? That's, that's not something we should grow out of. That's not something we should try to like mature our way out of. See, it's part of actually a part of God's good design, and it's, it's been the, that way from the very beginning. Remember just a few weeks ago, we were talking about men and women together, how men and women need one another if we're going to actually embody, if we're going to actually live as the image of God, live out our identity and calling as the image of God, that we need men and women together to do it. The same is true in the church, right? We need each other to live out our calling to be the embodying presence of Jesus that fills the earth. You cannot do it alone. You have been called to do it, and you cannot do it alone. You see, in the Corinthians, they all needed to hear that message. And I am deeply convinced that all of us need that message as well. See, because the reality is that there's these, these two big lies that we are tempted to believe, either about ourselves or about others, that fundamentally they, it undermines our ability to live out our identity and our calling as the body of Christ. And the, the first lie is simply this, that, that we are dispensable, that we are unnecessary. The Corinthian culture loved everything showy and spectacular. And so everyone in the church wanted to have gifts that were showy and spectacular, Right? They wanted to be seen as impressive and, and be seen as influential. And when that wasn't how God had chose to appoint or empower some of them for ministry, they were just full of self-pity, right? They said, I'm not like those other Christians who can do all those cool things for God. I, I, I guess I just don't really belong. I'm not really that important. I'm not, I guess I must not really be necessary. That's, those are the people that are staying the stuff in verse 15 or 16 about how because I'm a hand, not a hand or an eye, that I don't belong to the body. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you look at how God is appointing and empowering others in the church and you think, man, I, I'm not like that at all. I, I can't do any of that stuff. Like that's, that's just not how God has gifted me or empowered me. And you look at yourself and you think, man, what do I have to offer? I don't think I'm really necessary around here. They, they don't really need me. They got plenty of impressive people already. And that's the first lie we believe, but the other is this. It's very similar. The first is that we are dispensable and unnecessary, and the second is that others are dispensable and unnecessary. See, the Corinthians who got it empowered with more visible and spectacular kinds of opportunities for ministry were looking at everyone else around and thinking, man, we are varsity and you are JV, right? The reality is, we don't need you, right? We just don't need you. We're fine, fine on our own. See, that's who Paul's addressing when he says that the eye and the head, they, they can't say to the hand or the feet that we don't need you. I need you to hear me this morning. One of, the, one of the, most, the worst fears that we have 
and I would say almost all of us wrestle with this, is uh, one of our worst fears is to be considered as dispensable, as unnecessary, as disposable, as replaceable. Ironically, the way that we often attempt to kind of guard against that is, so what we do is we try to inflate our own sense of worth by deflating the sense of worth of others. So that's what's happening in the Corinthian church. I remember uh, growing up, I wanted to be the next Michael Jordan. I lived in the Chicago suburbs in the height of the Jordan glory years, and the documentary last summer revived all of my joyous remembrances of those glorious years where Jordan was just crushing everyone. Anyways, um, but so I really wanted to be the next Michael Jordan. The reality was is that I got cut from every basketball team I ever tried out for. Every single one. I didn't make a single team, right? And I hated, I hated going up to the clipboard that was hanging on the wall that showed who made the team and who didn't. And I hated doing that because what I knew is that I wasn't going to be on the list. So to fight that feeling of, of being dispensable and unnecessary... What I'd tell myself is that there was this other kid who was on the, who usually made the teams and he was like the last one before the cut, right? And I would tell myself that I was, I was actually really better than him. And, and the, only, the only reason why he made the team is because his dad was friends with the coach or whatever it was, right? And, and what I would do is that the reality is that he was probably actually better than me. I was not good, right? That's the reason I actually got cut because I was not very good, right? But I would tell myself that I was. And I'd look for ways to criticize this other kid in my mind and to prove that I was really better than him and that the team would be really have been better off if they would have just picked me for the team, right? That he was dispensable, not me. I see, and we do that thing, we do that same kind of thing all the time. In order to make ourselves feel better, to feel more important, what we do is we try to inflate our own sense of worth by deflating the worth of others. You see, and the reality is, is that we believe both of those lies all the time. It's not like some of you believe one and some of you believe the other. We both believe those lies all the time. The reality is that in our weaknesses, we see ourselves as dispensable. And yet in our strengths, we see ourselves as indispensable and others as dispensable. You see, we believe both of those lies, all of us do, in different ways and in, in different times. But the truth is that they are both lies. They're both lies. You see, in Paul's response to both of these lies is to remind us about the God's good design of interdependence and necessity of every part of the body. Verse 17 and 19, right? He says, if the whole body were an eye, then where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, then where would the sense of smell be? If they were all just one part, where would the body be? Verse 22, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. See, the, the thing that the nail that Paul's trying to hammer home this, in this passage is he's saying that you all need each other. You all need each other. And the parts that you think you need less, the parts that you think are weaker, are actually indispensable parts. They are crucially important. One commentator puts it this way he says, No matter how important any one member may be, there can be no body formed from it alone. That would be a monster and not a body. You see, you need preachers and you need administrators. And you need teachers and you need servants. 
You need everyone. You need everyone. You need each other. If this church just had me and the gifts that I, that God has empowered me with, then you might get a, a good sermon, but there would be nobody to watch your kids, right? Because I would have forgotten to send out the planning center invites, right? And no one would have ever remembered, right? And so there'd be, you'd show up and there'd be nobody to watch your kids and it'd be a hot mess, right? Or you'd get a terrible sermon because I spent 49 hours trying to figure out how to fill all the people in the spots, right? Because I'm terrible at that stuff, right? And so while doing that kind of stuff makes my brain explode, like looking at a giant spreadsheet and filling all the holes and trying to see where everything fits, that makes my, just makes me want to be done with the world, right? That stuff actually makes my wife happy. She looks at a spreadsheet and she starts to grin. And that's weird, right? It, it is, right? But it is so necessary, right? Because what takes me an entire week takes her like two or three hours, right? And it's better when she's done after two hours than when I've done it for 49, right? You see, her gifts are different than mine, but they are just as necessary and just as indispensable. And if she would not use her gifts and serve in the ways that God's empowered and appointed for her, then it would cause all kinds of problems in all other kinds of ways. You see, because we are interdependent. It's not just that we're connected. It's that we need one another. The same is true of the gifts and the opportunities for ministry that God is appointing and empowering for you to do in this church. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, God has given every member gifts, but he has not given any individual all the gifts. We are incomplete in and of ourselves. And to the extent that there is a failure to see the necessity of one another in the body, of all the parts in the body, to that extent we will view ourselves and others as dispensable. And we will miss God's good design for his church. Church, do you see that? God's good design is that we cannot be his body on our own. That you need each other. That you are needed. And that others need you. That you need others and that others need you. The reality is that so often we get trapped in believing the lies that others are dispensable or that we are. And so the question is, how do, you, how do we fight the lies of, of self-pity or self-sufficiency? that keep us from living out our identity and our calling as God's people? How do we, how do we fight the lies that keep us from, from being the embodiment of his presence that fills the earth with his glory? That's the same way we fight any other lie that we're tempted to believe as Christians. It's by coming back to the truths of the gospel. You see, the gospel is the, the person and the work of Jesus not only tells us what is true, it proves to us what is true about ourselves and about others. The reality is that we are necessary and indispensable to Jesus himself. Stephen Um so beautifully writes, he says, Christ could have viewed sinners as dispensable, but in his grace he saw us as indispensable. In fact, he became dispensable in our place. The head of the body has declared that we are not indispensable, even if we have falsely determined that we are. The most presentable part, the head was willingly dishonored so that the least presentable parts, you and I, might receive honor. The strongest member was made weak and dispensable 
in order that the weaker members, you and I, might be considered as indispensable. Church, do you see how the gospel transforms our community? Do you see how the reality of who Jesus is and all that he has done radically shapes who we are? Jesus says that none of us are dispensable, that he died for each and every one of us, and that he placed each one of us in his church, in his body, just as he determined. It's not an accident. He puts you in a community because he wants you there and he has a purpose for you in it. So that together as a community we might fill the earth with his glory as we embody his presence until he returns. The reality is that both of the lives that we are tempted to believe about ourselves and others, that, that we're dispensable, that we're unnecessary, or that others are, they both really stem from pride themselves because the reality is that we want to be seen as the most important. And we want our gifts to be most valued and we want to be viewed as special and we want to be viewed as indispensable. And that happens because we've forgotten the identity and the calling that we already have because of Jesus, because of the gospel. You see, but when we remember that truly the most important one of us proves to us that we matter, that we have worth, that we are necessary to him, that when we have all the value and the dignity that we could ever need, and that frees you, it frees you when you choose to receive what he says is true about you. That frees you from needing to make an identity for yourselves. And it frees you from needing to believe the lies that you are dispensable or that someone else is or that you need to inflate yourself by deflating others. The gospel empowers you instead to be concerned instead of about your own self, about the glory of God and the good of others. Gospel is the one thing that empowers you with that because it gives you an identity and a value and a purpose that is unshakable. The king of the universe, the creator of everything, says you matter to him. And so you are necessary as a part of his body. Church, would we believe that about ourselves and about one another? See, that's what it means for us to be a church that is gospel-centered. It means that it's not just our salvation that, that has to do with that we believe about the gospel, but, but our ongoing growth as well is always connected with understanding and believing the truth about who Jesus proves we are in him. And so you never get past that. You don't grow up out of it. It must be the hub at the center of the wheel of our faith. The person and the work of Jesus must be the truth to which all, every part of our lives connects. See, in that message, the gospel, that's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion together. Because the truth is that we, we are tempted to believe all kinds of lies all the time. The two I talked about this morning and all kinds of other ones. And so each week we choose to remember that Jesus' body and his broken blood was shed for us so that we might be forgiven and cleansed and made new and included into a community whose staggering identity and calling is to fill the earth with God's glory by living as the embodiment of his very son. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him and it, it doesn't, doesn't cause him to see you as better or worse or any of that. The Bible is clear that the one thing that changes our status and our standing with God is that when we put by faith our trust in the person and the work of Jesus to make us right with him. 
And so if you are here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, I just need you to hear, I'm so glad that you are here. But I would encourage you to hold off on taking communion this morning. See, communion is about remembering and celebrating the identity that we have by faith in Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out what it means to follow Jesus, if that's something you really want, and if you're still finding yourself creating an identity for yourselves rather than receiving the one that Jesus has for you, then I want to encourage you, just you are welcome here, but hold off on communion. Instead, come receive Jesus and the identity he has for you as his beloved and necessary child. But if you have trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There's two tables in the back, one on the left, one on the right. Uh, different ways you can do it. There's bread, you can dip in juice, and there's little snack packs. Whatever way you feel most comfortable doing, go ahead and do that. And as you do, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Ask him to help you to take your eyes off of yourself and start looking at the community around you to see your need for them and their need for you. And ask God how he might be empowering and appointing for you to minister on his behalf so that the church might be built up and that the body of believers might embody Jesus' very presence in the world and so fill the earth with God's glory. Ask God to remind you how much you need the community. Ask him to graciously convict you where you see others as unnecessary or where you see yourself that way. Ask him to show you how he's appointing and empowering you to make much of him. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, come together this morning, and God, we're so grateful for you and for your word, and I know I've gone long, and God, I pray that our time together as we remember you, Jesus, as we remember your death on our behalf, God, what it says about us, that we, are, that we matter to you, that we are necessary to you, and that you have placed us in your body. If we have trusted in you by faith, you have placed us in your body, in the church, in such a way that we are needed and that we need one another so that we might live out our calling to make much of you, Jesus. And so, God, empower us as your church to see one another as necessary and indispensable and to be committed to pouring ourselves out to serve this community and to serve others in such a way that we might embody your son, Jesus, and give you all the glory as we see our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and as one another grow up in faith in you. God, we pray this for our good and for your glory we ask. Amen.